Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. going on everybody welcome back to another episode of murph's boston sports talk i am your host james murphy and thank you so much for joining me on monday's edition of murph's boston sports talk it's a little weird to introduce this episode as monday's episode although although it is monday's episode i am just currently recording this part of the episode on sa- uh, on sunday excuse me because the bruins game just wrapped up their series against the Washington Capitals is over, and I kind of just wanted to break it down really quickly, give my initial thoughts, my initial reactions to not only the game, but the series as a whole, and I really wanted to do that raw, fresh off the press with the game literally concluding 10 minutes ago, maybe? I don't know. I, I mean, I would say the handshakes were just done five minutes ago, so I would assume the game was five minutes or so ago. So, I didn't want I didn't want to wait till tomorrow to record this. Although, you know, I'm only going to record this little section, you know, pause, come back tomorrow and then record the actual episode, of course. Just like with the Super Bowl, just wanted to give my brief quick reaction thoughts and anything really based off of game 5 and the whole series in general. So, breaking down game 4 uh game 5, excuse me. This was a game that Saw no goals in the first period, and for a good chunk of the second period, we thought that, hmm, this could be another low-scoring game. You know, one nothing, two one week winner. But you know, the Bruins were then able to score a goal, break the ice, and then break, um, break another goal through to go up two nothing at the end of two. It was like bang bang, yet again. It was awesome to see that the Bruins' offense really kicked it up a notch. I'm not going to lie, besides game games one and maybe part of two, the Bruins were really able to get away with 
their play style. And this is something I really mentioned and emphasized on at the beginning of, before the se- uh, series even started is that the Capitals want to play their physical play style. They are a very skilled team. They are a very dynamic offense. But the Bruins were really answering the bell when the Capitals want to go hit you, pound you into the board, beat you to a pulp. The Bruins were able to take that beating and really push back with their play style, and I think it really showed. Obviously, they backswept them after losing the first four, uh, after losing the first game, and then winning the next four games. So quickly, we saw goals by David Pasternak and Patrice Bergeron, who netted two of them himself. Bergeron walked away with two points. Pasternak two points himself as he tallied an assist on Bergeron on one of Bergeron's goals. Mike Riley. Two assists, two points. A little sneaky right there. Did not expect that from him. But I think there was a stat they were saying during the the game is he's had a point in the past three games. I mean, I would have to go back and look at it. I mean, not that it really matters. I mean, actually, no, it does matter. I, what am I tripping? It does matter because this guy doesn't score the puck at all. He hasn't had a career goal in his lifetime in the NHL. He's a good, strong, physical defenseman who's going to be at the top of the blue zone, passing the puck into entries, shooting it on the net, hoping that the you know the wingers can get a tip into the net. So that's his play style. So to see him get more assists to double up on the points is definitely a nice sight to see. Bruins, as a whole, weren't able to get a lot of shots on net. Um, Samsonov was able to uh, only face 19 shots, although he only stopped 16 of them giving up those three goals, but 19 shots and scoring three goals. Very intriguing because as we look on the other side for the Capitals, they took 41 shots. Holy shit. 41 shots. Tuka Rask stopping 40. 40 saves. Only giving up one goal, and it was that cheeky goal to start the third period, 11 seconds in or whatever. I was still in the bathroom when the, the period started, and I, I hear down the hall, eh, only 11 seconds in. Eh. It's like, holy shit, thank goodness we had that second goal, am I right? And then the Bruins would go on to score another goal later on. But 41 shots, 40 saves. Tremendous performance by Tuka Rask and I'm not gonna lie it seems like Tuka Rask has his head on right I mentioned this at the beginning of the series and I mentioned it ample times it was one of my keys going into this game is if Tuka Rask can have his head on straight the Bruins should win this series they should and it certainly seems like that they could for a lot of periods of time throughout this series and they ended up doing it. Absolutely tremendous series by Tuka Rask. I know he had, you know, he gave up that cheeky little goal. What was it? Game one. Yeah, it was the game that the, um, the not the Islanders, holy smokes. The Capitals won, you know, the beginning of the series. That then overtime was a cheeky goal. But he gave up three goals in game one, three goals in game two, two in game three, one in four, and one in five. Games 3, 4, and 5, absolutely spectacular. Obviously, Game 3 is the double overtime game. Looked tremendous. Is it is it bad if I want to kind of give him MVP of the series? I don't think so. In an elimination game for the Capitals, he faced 41 shots, blocking 40 of them. In Game 4, 
Let me scroll down. Only face 20 shots, saving 19. And game three being the big overtime game. Bruins, uh, he faced 37 shots, stopping 35. Obviously, though, you know, literally playing a period and a half of golden goal. So I don't know the exact numbers off of my head. But, you know, some of those 37, you could argue maybe 10 of them being high leverage shots. So I think without Tuka Rask, do you win the series? Maybe. I mean, Swayman was very hot. You know, he tremendous goalie during the regular season. I think he could have got it done. I mean, there was often times where the Capitals' offense was so dry. I mean, look at games uh, four and five. They score one goal each in those games, and then only two in game three. I don't know if you win this game in uh, the series in five games, but the way that the Capitals were playing and the way that you were playing your play style as the Boston Bruins, I think Jeremy Swayman could have stole this series. And I have no idea why I'm talking about this because... In terms of Tuka Rask, a lot of people don't want him on the team next year because his contract's up. People are sick of him, you know, being a puddle in big games. And I certainly think that game three double overtime game was a massive game. Absolutely massive game. Obviously, game four and game five, big games, respectively. I just don't think that you're going to make this cup run a potential cup run without Tuka Rask in the helm. I don't think Jeremy Swayman is ready yet. God forbid anything's to happen to Tuka Rask. Knock on wood. I think you'd be okay and solid with Jeremy Swayman, but just Tuka Rask has the playoff experience, the playoff pedigree. He's playing for his next contract, whether it's with the Bruins or not. A lot is riding on the line for Tuka Rask here in this series as well, just as much as it is for the Boston Bruins and me personally, I love Tuka Rask. I think he is a exceptional goalie. He gets a lot of criticism for the poor play that is far and few in between. And you could probably rip that claim apart and be like, oh, he went a 10-game stretch of, you know, giving up this many goals against these kind of teams. It's like, okay. But you can say that about anybody. But like I've mentioned, Tuka Rask is a top five, arguably a top three goalie at the top of his game. And I think we are seeing the top of his game right now right now as this uh capital series concludes and as we move on to the second round and i know i kind of slipped on it and i kind of alluded to it but we do have to wait to see who we're going to play next round so the bruins the three seed knock off the capitals the two seed and we await the winner of the one versus four seed the penguins being the one and the islanders being the four seed if we just take a peek, I took a small little peek see, into that series on Friday's episode of Merce Boston Sports Talk. Well, we have ourselves a series over there. At the time, the Penguins were winning the series 2-1 to one at the time. And then the Islanders come back to win 4-1 to one to tie it up. Uh, yesterday being Saturday, as I'm recording it. Saturday was is yesterday for me. If you, when you're listening on Monday, it's going to be two days ago on Saturday. So pardon me right there. But yes, 2-2 series. Game 5, Monday, tonight. For me right now as I'm recording, it says tomorrow. But when this comes out and it's published live to all you wonderful listeners on the audio-only platforms, whether it's Spotify, Google, Amazon, Apple, whatever... Or if you're listening on YouTube at Murph's Boston Sports Talk on YouTube, game will be airing tonight, 7 o'clock puck drop in Pittsburgh. And then game six, 
is going to be Wednesday, May 26th. The time is to be determined. And then if necessary, Friday, Game 7 in Pittsburgh. Game 6 is in New York. Game 7, if necessary, is Friday, May 28th in Pittsburgh. Who do I want to win this series? Well, to be honest, I don't really know. I'm kind of back and forth because the Bruins played very poorly against the Islanders in the regular season. They were 3-5 and five against them in the regular season. And all three of those wins came late in the season. I did I looked it up earlier before I started, but I just want to double check. Um cuz you had like a back-to-back against them. Okay, so Monday May 10th was final overtime game. That was the second to last game of the season. And then April 15th and April 16th you won 4 to 1 and 3 nothing respectively. And then the other five games you lost to them. All throughout the regular season, you lost to them before you won those last three games against them. Pittsburgh, on the other hand, you are 5-3 and three against. Now, in retrospect, the Islanders were like, you know, top, you know, one seed for a long time. Then the Capitals snuck in there. And then the Penguins ultimately got the number one seed because they were incredibly hot. Like the last two, two and a half, three weeks of the season. And they absolutely stole the one seed from the Islanders, the Capitals, the Bruins even made uh, you know a bid for it, but they ended up falling short. And then the Islanders just kind of fell off the face of the earth, not completely, but you know they just completely slipped and threw away the, the one seed. They finished their, they finished the season three, four, and three, and the Penguins were eight, two, and zero. Oh. And since I'm here, I'll talk about it. The Capitals seven, two, and one, and the Bruins six, three, and one. But 3-4-3 three, and three for the Islanders to end the regular season, not good. Absolutely threw away the first, or even the second seed for that matter. And then the Penguins finishing 8-2 eight, eight and two in the regular season absolutely stole the one seed. So who do I want to face? Well, I don't exactly know yet, to be honest to you. Gun to my head, having to answer it. I'm going to say the Islanders. I just think the Penguins have a lot of star power. Obviously, Sidney Crosby. They are the number one seed. And although you do pose a good matchup against the, the Pittsburgh Penguins, I just think they're a very dangerous team, just like the Capitals were entering this series. The Islanders, on the other hand, I don't know if they have that kind of firepower that the Penguins have. The Penguins are a much hotter team, like I mentioned, and the Islanders are not. Although you're only 3-5 and five against the Islanders in the regular season, and you're 5-3 and three against the Penguins in the regular season, I'm still kind of leaning... New York Islanders in this one travel distance would be a little shorter which would be nice for the Bruins but <clears throat> that is besides the point series is 2-2 right now game 5 uh, Monday tonight for you listening <laughs> in Pittsburgh I'm definitely going to be tuning in trying to do my research scout ahead a little bit because obviously that series won't be decided tomorrow for me tonight for you is just, I hate this I should not be recording <laughs> right now but I am anyways and game 6 will decide one way or another and then like I said game seven on Friday if necessary I'm really excited that the Bruins will have a few days off here between now and the next series whether it's between the New York Islanders or the Pittsburgh Penguins I'm really glad that the Bruins were able to take care of business here in game five and not blow boogie I'm recording right now buddy dog's crying he wants attention or to do something else I don't know but just give me like two more minutes Count in your head. Two minutes, please. 
I'm really excited and happy. I am thrilled that the Bruins were able to take care of business in game five in DC in our nation's capital to not lose the game. Go back to Boston for game six. Hope to one minute, please hope to win it there. And then, like I said, you know, things could happen. Then come game seven, they were able to buckle down. They took this game like they were down three games to one and not winning three games to one able to close out their opponent being the capitals to move on in advance that shows excellent pedigree determination focus and that shows heart it shows heart because they are serious about this titles this year's title run this year's cup run because we've been saying it for a couple years now the group's getting older. They're phasing out, and they're going to be soon gone. I mean, Zidane Char is not on the team anymore. Tuka Rask is up at the end of this year. David Krejci is up at the end of next year. Bergeron and Martian aren't getting any younger. So this year is a very important year. I still think that they have a great shot at the Cup. Obviously, it started with this series, and it's going to continue against the next series, whether it's against Pittsburgh or the Islanders. And I'm not even going to bother to look into the other divisions and their playoffs I'm just going to mention that the Colorado Avalanche were able to clean sweep 4-0 the St. Louis Blues and they can go pound some sand because I hate the St. Louis Blues for beating us in Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Finals a couple years ago in the Garden. Colorado Avalanche looked like a phenomenal team, absolute studs of a team, and they could easily represent uh, the West Division in the Conference Finals. I I still need to figure out how it is it. Central, East, West, and North? Or is it East and North, Central? I'll figure it out. I'll figure it out. But the Avalanche, thank you for destroying the St. Louis Blues. And hopefully, from a Boston Bruins fan, we do not have to face you in a potential Stanley Cup Finals matchup. But that's going to do it for my Bruins segment. I'm going to end my little post-game afterthought initial take analysis breakdown raw go of the series against the capitals for the bruins as they beat the washington capitals four games to one in fashion in elegance in stride as they make their stanley cup playoff run and although i'm recording on sunday you're not going to miss a beat because you're going to catch me recording monday's episode of murph boston sports talk right now all right guys we are going to be transitioning over to the boston bruins and i know that they're not playing until tomorrow but obviously today being monday we do have to talk about them so come wednesday's episode i'm sorry hump day's episode of murph's boston sports talk we'll be able to kind of break down react to game two however it may pan out but quickly some notables about game one uh, Celtic obviously losing 104-93 to the Brooklyn Nets, going down 1-0 in the series. Honestly, it was a good game overall. The Celtics really were able to kind of take control in the first half or so, but then in the third pe- uh, third period, I'm still thinking hockey, holy smokes. Um, in the third quarter, the Nets really pushed and gave the Celtics a really good punch right to the teeth that the Celtics were able to weather for a decent amount of time. I mean, the third quarter was 31-20 in favor of the Nets, so it's not terrible. But it, it came down to the fourth quarter where the the lead eventually vanished and the Brooklyn Nets were able to kind of seize, take, take control of the game. 
and ultimately put it away. Uh, just putting some chapstick on it. All right. Jason Tatum, 41 minutes of uh, play time, 22 points. Not going to cut it. Just going to be blunt with you. Not going to cut it. 93 total points in this game is also not going to cut it as, as a team whole. Evan Fournier, 39 minutes and 10 points. Tristan Thompson, 25 minutes, 10 rebounds, but only four points. I don't really care about his points. I'm more concerned about his rebounds. Obviously, maybe getting some offensive boards and going with up some going up with putbacks would definitely be extremely beneficial. Something that we see Rob Williams do a lot. And speaking of the Time Lord, 23 minutes, 11 points, nine rebounds there. Kemba Walker, 27 minutes, 15 points. Marcus Smart, 40 minutes, 17 points. Aaron Neesmith was a nice little surprise there. 17 minutes and 5 points. Peyton Pritchard, 7 minutes, no points there. And Jabari Parker, someone I want to talk about. He got 22 minutes, 9 points, 4 boards. Absolutely pleasant surprise by Jabari Parker. And I say that with the connotation that he used to, well, he was the number 2 overall pick in the draft. A bunch, uh, I don't know, was it 20? Let me look it up real quick. Jabari Parker. Let's see. He was the number two pick in 2014. Yeah. So what can we expect from him moving forward? Now, keep in mind the Celtics did sign him to a two-year deal uh, towards the end of this season. So we do have him for the remainder of this year and also next year. So keep that in mind. But it's nice to see him coming off the bench and supplying a little spark plug. Honestly, I mean... He used to be, he was the number one recruit going to Duke, the number two overall pick in the draft uh, seven years ago. He still has the talent. He still has the potential. He's still relatively young. I mean, he's 26 years old. Is he a bust? Sure. But for us, the Celtics, I mean, we don't need him to be that number two overall pick. We don't need him to be the franchise face. We just need him to be a reliable role player that can come off the bench, spot start if needed, and anything more than that is just a bonus. And right now, what he's giving us is pleasantly surprising. And obviously, there's still room to grow, but we're going to take what we can with this guy because, quite frankly, I've been harping about this the entire season. The Celtics bench sucks. <laughs> I'm just going to be honest with you. It blows. Grant Williams, uh, no minutes this game. Tremont Waters, no minutes this game. Peyton Pritchard, who's been who actually had a really good start of the season, kind of faded towards you know the end of the season. Seven minutes, no points, like I mentioned. Aaron Neesmith has been all over the chart, really, but it was good to see him get some playing time for sure. And then uh, Jabari Parker coming off the bench as well. Absolutely fantastic, I think, addition for the, the Celtics. And he's someone that they needed, you know, a versatile wing player that can kind of play big, you know, can score relatively decently right and I also mentioned that they need veteran help and though he's not a veteran but at least they were able to chalk uh, two pieces up because they got Evan Fournier being the shooter and the scorer then they got you know Jabari Parker to help with the bench depth and they just missing that veteran piece and that's something that's really gonna you know hinder the Celtics this year I just oh man 22 points from Tatum 10 from Fournier 15 from Kemba you're not going to win. You're simply not going to win. I mean, Durant, 32, Kyrie, 29, and James Harden off night with 21 points. You're just not. And then, oh, your old friend, um, Jeff Green, he got three points in 27 minutes. But uh, 
This this is a tough one as well because you had the lead for a lot of the game, and if you were able to squeeze one out and sneak a win out, imagine how detrimental that would have been to this series. How crucial just a game one victory would have been, setting the tone right for your locker room, your team, your players, your fans that hey, we could do this. Like although it's not very realistic, but hey, we're able to squeeze one out in Brooklyn. Anything might be possible here. But obviously, as we all know, Celtics did end up losing 104-93. And as we look ahead to Game 2 tomorrow at 7, tip-off at 7, 7.30 tip-off tomorrow, Brooklyn does lead 1-0, like I said. Game will be in Brooklyn, of course. What do I expect? Well, I expect a rebound game from Jason Tatum, quite frankly. 41 minutes and only 22 points. I think is an off night for him. If the Celtics have any shot in winning a game or two, and if you want to be a green teamer and save the series, Tatum's going to have to score 30 every night. Minimum. Whatever whatever the highest total is for the Nets, obviously uh, game one was 32 by Durant, Tatum's going to have to match that. So say James Harden drops 40, Tatum's going to have to drop 40. You have to even that out. Then you're going to need Kemba Walker, 27 minutes and 15 points. Not enough. You're going to need upper 20s from Kemba as well. 30s would be nice. They would kind of tilt the edge a little in your favor. Evan Fournier is going to have to do 20 himself. And Marcus Smart is going to have to play lockdown defense, probably on all three of them throughout the entirety of Game 2 if they want any chance to win Game 2. And like I mentioned, if they go down 0-2, in the series, in the first two games, you can probably just chalk it up as a loss for the Celtics and a win for the Brooklyn Nets, who are one of, if not the favorites out of the East, and one of, if not the favorite, to win the NBA championship. And speaking of which, if they don't win the championship, it'll be a disappointing season for the Brooklyn Nets, their fan base, their teams, because they have a team to win right now. Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, James Harden, Blake Griffin. They did have LaMarcus Aldridge, though, before he retired with his heart condition. Jeff Green. um, Joe Harris, even. So they have great players on their team. You know, Blake Griffin's probably washed up, but still serviceable. Still a name. And he can pop off any second with a momentum-shifting dunk if he wants. And you just don't have any of that. And although Blake Griffin does not have great postseason success, he has experience. So from his time with the Clippers... That accounts for something. Jeff Green, his time with the Cavaliers, that's playoff experience. It just sucks. It just sucks because looking back at that Brooklyn Nets-Celtics trade seven years ago, eight years ago, whenever it was now, you should have had, you should probably still have been rebuilding, maybe starting to turn the page now. But instead, they made the playoffs, I think, not the year after the trade. Or maybe, yeah, the two years after the trade, they made the playoffs. The 8th seed got swept by the Cavaliers, whatever. And then little do we know it, you know, they trade for Isaiah Thomas. They're an underdog. They're a fun team to watch. They got a bunch of these role players playing big-time minutes, making big-time shots, winning big games. Next thing you know, they're in the Eastern Conference Finals against the Cavaliers. And they're a great Cinderella story. But ever since then, like 2016, 2017, the expectations for the Celtics have been through the roof. And deservingly so, because they are the Boston Celtics. 
They are one of the most historic franchises in not just basketball, but in sports. And although the Celtics had some good early success in Brad Stevens' career with the Celtics, then you also bring in Jalen Brown, you bring in Jason Tatum, and they start to endure that early career success, making it to the Eastern Conference Finals against LeBron and the Cavs, going to Game 7, and making the Eastern Conference Finals three of the past four seasons before, uh, no, including last year, excuse me. Now you're at this point, it's just like, we're going backwards. Like, we went from zero all the way up to 100, and now we're going backwards before we even won a championship. It's just frustrating, disappointing, because ample times Danny Ainge has had the opportunity to move players, move draft picks, to bring in better players, to help the roster, such as this year, such as last year, and he just doesn't capitalize, and... That has now put you in a position that you have Grant Williams, Tremont Waters, Peyton Pritchard, Aaron Neesmith, uh, Romeo Langford, Semi Ojale, and Taco Fall was a undrafted free agent, so he doesn't count. But all those young guys that aren't getting minutes. Oh, then you had the RJ Hunters of the world as well that aren't even on your team anymore. It's like, yes, having all these first round, all these second round picks are nice. And I've gone through it. I've gone through the whole list before. On Murph's Boston Sports Talk. But at some point, you have to cash those in. Because at some point, you're going to turn out like the 2020 and the 2021 Boston Celtics. Having Grant Williams, Tremont Waters, Peyton Pritchard, Aaron Neesmith, uh, Semi Ojale, Romeo Langford, Carson Edwards even. I forgot about him. Just all sitting on your bench. Meanwhile, those spots can be utilized by... Veteran role players, maybe some shooters, a rim protector, a versatile wing like a Jabari Parker, so I'll give him that one. Tristan Thompson being, you know, that veteran big man, I'll give him that one. It's just like, ugh. Yeah. As much as I love the Boston Celtics and as much as I want them to go out, prove us all wrong, beat the Brooklyn Nets seven games in Brooklyn, it's just not going to happen. They'll be lucky to win one game, if I'm going to be honest with you. And that one game may be in Boston. Actually, it probably will be in Boston because I don't know if they'll be able to win in Brooklyn. But they did play very well. You know, I don't want to say they played very well. They had times throughout the game that they played very well. They just weren't able to close it. Maybe they can learn from their mistakes, make some adjustments, and go out and win game two. And then Wednesday's addition to Merce Boston Sports Talk has an entirely different story to it. But... Between now and then, we'll just have to wait and see, right? So that is your little Celtics segment right there. Low expectations for Game 2. But I will go over three keys for the Celtics to win. I kind of briefly touched about what I expect or what I want, what the Celtics need. But I'll just go over some keys real quick for the Celtics if they want to win Game 2. So, one, Tatum has to match whoever the Brooklyn Nets high scorer is. I already kind of mentioned that. Kemba Walker is going to have to match the second high score for the Brooklyn Nets. Probably even score more than the high score for the Brooklyn Nets. Those are two right off the bat. Three, you got to play team defense. You have to stop that triple-headed attack. Durant, Irving, Harden, one way or another. Whether it's man-to-man defense, whether it's zone, could be a 2-3, 3-2, 1-3-1. 
I don't care. It could be a, a box in one. I don't care what the zone is. You have to find creative ways to stop this team because otherwise they're just going to, you know, shoot you to death and they're going to run up the scoreboard. And you're lucky that the scoreboard wasn't, wasn't run up. It's an 11-point game, relatively close game. But when you only score 20 points in the third and in the fourth quarters, 40 in the second half, it's not going to cut it. Not going to cut it against this, against this team. And they only scored 16 in the first. The Nets, they only scored 16 points in the first quarter. You have the potential to stop them on defense. I think you do. Or at least slow them down. I'm not going to say stop. I think that's very strong. But you have the potential to slow them down. You have the potential to have a hot, fiery offense. But you just need all cylinders to click, shift into gears, and outperform your opponent at the right time with no mistakes. So those are my three keys for the Celtics to potentially win or at least compete and give the Nets a run for their money here in Game 2, which is tomorrow at Brooklyn, 7.30 tip-off. We will have to wait and see who comes out of that one. Like I said, I think it will be the Nets. I'll be shocked if it's the Celtics. And if it is the Celtics winning, going 1-1 back to Boston, it will be a certainly interesting conversation that we'll have in next episode. But that is your Celtics minute right there. Leave your comments, your thoughts down below if you're watching on YouTube, what you think about the Boston Celtics versus the Brooklyn Nets playoff series here in the first round of a best of seven in the Eastern Conference. If you're listening on audio-only platforms, please reach out to me on social media at Murphs underscore Boston ST, where the ST stands for sports talk. All right. Something that I've been kind of, I don't want to say avoiding, but something that I haven't really touched upon or discussed yet, and I think I'm overdue to do so, and that is, let me get a little closer to the mic here, and that is the Julio Jones rumors to the New England Patriots. Well, let me just say, I thought it was a fantasy, a long shot, a dream, mad and realistic, sure, Actually, not even mad and realistic because it's a pain in the ass to trade for players in that game. But this is something that actually has potential. And that is for the New England Patriots to trade for Atlanta Falcons star, superstar, Julio Jones. So let me run over a little bit of contract stuff with Julio Jones just to kind of catch you up to speed. So Julio Jones signed an extension, a three-year extension. $66 million extension with a $25 million signing bonus with $64 million guaranteed at signing. Uh, That was in 2019 where he still had two years left of his contract. Now that's an additional three years from that. So the start of 2021, he'll have 2021, 2022, and 2023 left on his current contract with the Falcons. As part of the extension, there was an $11 million option bonus due in 2020. Through the 2020 season, Jones earned, I don't know, it doesn't matter how much he earned. All right. The 2021 season will be the first year of Jones' latest contract extension when he signed the extension in 2019. He still had two years. I already mentioned all that. Uh, da, 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 da. What impact does Jones' deal have on Falcons' cap? Now, I kind of mentioned this during the whole, you know, the pre-draft conversations for the Falcons while they had the number fourth pick. They could, They didn't have enough salary to even sign their newly drafted players for that year so moving julio jones before the draft 
would have made sense, but also on the other hand, it would not have made sense. Moving Julio Jones would have only given them more draft capital for future years at that time. It would have helped them be able to move some pieces around for the 2020 draft. However, in terms of the financial status, it would have made zero sense. As it stands on May 20th, it's now 24th, so articles from a couple days ago. It's okay. Um, wait, when is this article from? Mm, okay, yeah, it was from a couple days ago. Okay, anyways, it doesn't matter. As it stands on May 20th, Jones' contract is due to count for $23.1 million against the Falcons' salary cap. Guaranteed salary makes up $15.3 million, while 5 is prorated signing bonus, and $2.75 million is the prorated option. Excuse that car horn they heard in the background. Uh, someone across the street's being stupid, whatever. So I just had to pause it, figure things out real quick. Anyways, we are back to it. Uh, let's see, where, where did I leave off? Okay, what options do the Falcons have with Jones's contract? The structure of Jones's contract and the impact it would have on their salary cap severely limits the Falcons option. If the Falcons were to release Jones ahead of June 1st, a further $17.5 million would accelerate onto the salary cap. In that unlikely event, Jones's contract would count for $40.6 million against the Falcons salary cap in 2021. This is why the Falcons were not going to trade him prior to June 1st. Although there was a lot of speculations that they could. $40.6 million in dead money when the salary cap is, I believe, at 179, 180, 181. Uh, let me look it up. 2021 NFL salary cap. Because it plateaued because of COVID. Uh, $182.5 million. So, wow. Wow. Okay, let's do some quick math here. 40.6 divided by 182.5 is 22. Well, 0.22246575. So 22% of the Atlanta Falcons available salary cap would be dead money against them for releasing Julio Jones prior to June 1st. Made zero sense, especially when salary cap is tight, COVID-19 is still a thing, you know, they, the league wasn't able to make a lot of money, so the salary cap wasn't able to go up like a lot of teams expected. Obviously, you know, a few years ago, they signed these players to these contracts expecting the salary cap to go up. Therefore, they have more money to maneuver and more money to spend. Anyways, back to the article. And speaking of which, this article is from profootballnetwork.com. The author is, I want to give him credit, who's the author? Ben Rolf. Published this three days ago. So Ben Rolf uh, of ProFootballNetwork.com. Thank you so much for this wonderful article that I'm reading to you, my wonderful listeners. Thank you for downloading, listening, and enjoying. As always, you guys are the best. Anyways, back to the article. However, the Falcons could limit the dead money in 2021 by releasing Jones as a post-June 1st transaction. Doing so would stop the remaining $10 million in prorated signing bonus and $5.5 million in prorated option bonus accelerating onto the cap in 2021. The Falcons would have to account for the $2 million in guaranteed salary on Jones' contract in 2022. Therefore, releasing Jones post-June 1 would leave the Falcons with $25.1 million in dead money. They would then have the remaining $15.5 million in dead money on their salary cap in 2022. So the dead money is the same, whether it's uh, 40.6 in 2021 or if it's broken up into two years, 21 and 22. It's just the date. If it's before June 1st, it's this much. If it's after, it's this much over two years. I hate how contracts are like that 
I wish it was so much more simple. Hey, you have this much on your contract. This was your signing. But what, like, even like the whole signing bonus thing, like, I get it. I understand it. It's smart, but I just think it's stupid because it complicates things. Oh, so much. How much is that player worth? Okay, we can fit him into our book, our, you know, our checkbook. Let's go get a deal done. So the money, 40.6 is how much there would be in dead money. If it's before, it is 40.6 and 21. If it's after June 1st, it is 25.1 and 21. And then it's 15.5 in 2022. So the numerical amount does not change regardless of the date. It just depends. Um, the only difference is going to be one year or two years for the dead money to be broken up. What would happen if the Falcons traded Jones and his contract? Now, this is where it gets spicy because this is where the Patriots, all those rumors start to come in. Once again, the key for the Falcons, if they were to trade Jones, would be the timing. Trading him before June 1st would save the Falcons no salary cap in 2021. While they would save $15.3 million in guaranteed salary, they would have $15.5 million in prorated money accelerate onto the cap. The net effect would be 200000 increase in his salary cap number to 23.25. Yet, a post-June post 1 trade would significantly alter the look of Jones' contract to the Falcons' salary cap. Doing so would see the Falcons clear the $15.3 million in guaranteed salary that would leave just $7.75 million in dead money on the Falcons' salary cap in 2021. The issue is that the Falcons would have to account for $15.5 million in dead money in 2022. With the Falcons strapped with the salary cap, this saving $15.3 million would be a huge benefit. So there's a massive difference. Another reason why I hate the complicated contract structure, if they release them, it's broken up this way. If it's before this date, it's broken up that way. If it's after, it's broken up this way. But if they trade him, before this date, it's like this. And if they trade him after this date, it's like that. It's just, oh my goodness, gosh, whatever. Okay, so how will Jones' contract shape up for the team acquiring him? A trade for Jones could be appealing for the team acquiring him. By making the trade, the team would take on Jones's $15.3 million salary in 2021 and $2 million in guaranteed 2022 salary. If that team were to release Jones ahead of 2022, 2022, they would be left with $2 million in dead money, having paid him $17.3 million on a one-year contract. If the team acquiring Jones were to keep him beyond the 2021 season, they would have plenty of options. Jones is due to have a salary of $11.5 million in both 2022 and 2023, thus trading for Jones would seem would see a team signing up for a three-year, $38.3 million contract. While that appears as excellent value, it would be a surprise not to see Jones request a new contract ahead of those seasons. If so, that could significantly increase, excuse me, that would significantly increase the salary cap cost of acquiring Jones and his contract. So, a lot to break down there. When, uh, I, I honestly think Julio Jones will get traded. Whether it's to the Patriots or not, that's still up for a discussion and yet to be foreseen. Regardless what team Jones goes to, his contract in 2021 will be 15.3, which is, you know, that whole dead money thing kind of, you know, getting rolled over. Uh, I'm, I'm not going into the numbers again, but okay. So the dead money in 2022 would be 15.5. 
if they release him before June 1st, whatever. So that money is going to get switched over to 2021 for his contract number minus 200,000 because of the whole whatever prorated shit. Okay. And then his salary. Oh my God. I hate when the their ads pop up and it just moves the screen. Stop moving the damn screen. And then Julio Jones' remaining contract will be 11.5 million in both 22 and 23. So you add all that up, it would be 38.3 million dollars for a three-year contract, essentially, for Julio Jones. Now, when healthy, Julio Jones is a top three wide receiver in the league. You can argue the other two. You could say Devontae Adams, DeAndre Hopkins, Julio Jones, even Michael Thomas whatever Julio Jones is always in that conversation for top three when healthy obviously you know and before this year he was relatively healthy his whole career led the league in receiving yards I'm not going to go to all his stats but I want to give you a good picture of what kind of player the Patriots could be getting into besides last year relatively healthy 14 15 16 game staple throughout his whole career with the exception of last year which helped the ascension of Julio um which helped the extension ascension of Calvin Ridley this year to be one of probably a top 10, maybe a top five wide receiver, not only in fantasy, but in the actual league itself. But with only making $11.5 million in 22 and 23, Julio Jones could look to uh, restructure, get a new extension of sorts to help, you know, get him paid more, though he is on the wrong side of 30. And if we just look up his age real quick, I believe he's 32. Yeah, he's 32 on the wrong side of 30, but he's still at the top of his game. And if he comes back healthy this year and he plays like he's had before, paying him more than 11.5 should not be a problem. Julio Jones is a completely freak of nature, different animal, different wide receiver than your typical, I don't know, (laughs) your typical NFL wide receiver. He's a, a tank. He's a superstar. He's a beast. And he is generational talent. So, where do the Patriots fit into all this? Well, it has come out that Julio Jones is interested with playing with Cam Newton for this upcoming season. And quite frankly, believe it or not, it seems like Cam Newton's a very uh, appealing piece you know, of attraction to bring in players. Now, I have no idea if he had any impact on bringing in the free agents that the Patriots were able to bring in this year. To bring in Julio Jones, I mean, sure, I'll definitely take that. And obviously, it seems like going into the season, Cam Newton will be the starting quarterback. Whether Mac Jones replaces him midway, beats him in training camp, that is yet to be foreseen. But that is a conversation for a whole nother day, a whole nother episode. So let's just keep talking about Julio Jones. Moving to a different article on CBSSports.com, written by Patrick Walker from 22 hours ago at the time of recording, so very recent, you know, fresh article. The team didn't draft a receiver, referring to the Patriots, until the seventh round this year, namely Trey Nixon, and lost Julian Edelman to retirement. The signing of both Kendrick Bourne and Nelson Aguilar in free agency helped put the team in a better position than they were in 2020. But respectively speaking, you can roll both of them into one and toss in another receiver on the Patriots roster, and you'd still fall short of having created what makes Julio Jones arguably the best wideout in the entire league. They pulled a similar move when they traded for Hall of Famer, Hall of Fame receiver Randy Moss in 2007, and I'm not going to talk about you know what follows that in referring to a Super Bowl loss. Anyways, Julio Jones, like I've mentioned, a sensational 
talent. Absolutely incredible player. And later in the article, it goes on to say, as far for space to fit in Jones in, the Patriots aren't in a bad spot. Currently, owners have just over $15 million in room to begin absorbing his deal of his total $23.05 million in cap for 2021. Only 15.3 is is guaranteed salary with the remainder being pro-rate signing bonus that has already been paid out in Atlanta, which I already talked about, which means the Patriots wouldn't be on the hook for it. So in essence, the Patriots could easily take on Jones' salary with a few tweaks. Examples, restructure, which would probably be ideal for both the team and Julio, but also potentially player releases as well. I don't know what the roster looks like just yet. Uh, you know, in terms of you know going into training camp and such, because you're allowed to have like 90 players on your team, although you're only paying for the top 53 of them. But yeah, bring it in. And sorry about that noise. You know, you hear it. it's me moving my mouse around. Julio Jones to New England Patriots is something very realistic. It's very possible. Could we see it happen? Absolutely, and we're going to have to wait another week before anything potentially happens. And a lot of these rumors about Julio Jones being traded are heating up, and the Patriots seem a lot of the other you know national reports saying the Patriots are on the top of that list. Julio Jones is wanting to go to New England to play with Cam Newton, and I am all on board. Julio Jones would ascend the New England Patriots to arguably the favorites in the AFC. I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it. Granted, Cam Newton can throw the ball. Because if he can't throw the ball, if he throws the ball or lack thereof like he did in 2020, there's no point in having Julio Jones or you know Hunter Henry or Jonu Smith on your team. There's no point. But if Cam Newton's able to kind of, you know, maybe get that second win, maybe show a little MVP form, or maybe, you know, early 2017 before he got injured form, or was it 2018? I forget what year he kind of showed out a little bit after one of his previous injuries. Then we're really cooking with something. Because Cam Newton, on a one-year deal, he's actually going to be getting paid this year. Could uh, have a show-out year. Is he the future of the Patriots? No, because they have Mac Jones. So him being on a one-year $14 million deal, he could be looking to get a nice little payday at the end of this year. So he's going to want to show out and ball out himself. A lot of rumors say that Cam Newton's been throwing the ball a lot this offseason. His ball looks tight. His ball looks good and fast. I'm going to be really interested to see what Cam Newton's able to do with or without Julio Jones. But man, if he's able to throw the ball, you bring in Julio Jones, the moves you made over this offseason, the defense getting back on track. Still have Bill Belichick, the greatest coach of all time. Watch out, Patrick Mahomes. Watch out. Now, obviously, I'm not going to sit here and compare and contrast who's the better team in the AFC with all these hypotheticals between the Patriots and what we know about the Chiefs. But that's still a conversation to be had. You know, a lot of people will still say the Chiefs and respectively so. But, I mean, you can't discount the Patriots the moves that they've made, and the potential that this team has for the 2021 season. I am looking forward to it immensely, and I cannot wait to see. I hope Julio Jones gets traded on June 1st, and just like, boom, day shifts over to June 1st. Patriots have traded for Julio Jones. Here is the breakdown. 
And what kind of trade could we see? Well, he's 32 years old, coming off an injury, but he's still at the top of his game. I, I mean, I think, right? I think he's still at the top of his game. What do you give up, though? What do you give up? I mean, okay, let's see. Your quarterback room is Cam Newton, Mac Jones. You just brought back Brian Hoyer, and you have Jared Stidham. Okay, their starting quarterback is Matt Ryan. So maybe, okay, obviously this is, you know, LOL, but maybe throwing Jared Stidham, serve as the backup. Matt Schaub's getting older himself. Jared Stidham could be a potential replacement for Matt Ryan. Maybe, I don't know. It just I'm just trying to spitball ideas, throwing shit on the wall, hope it sticks, right? You could throw in Nikhil Harry, you know, someone that's potentially busted for you, but, you know, maybe a change of scenery, put a young receiver down in Atlanta with Calvin Ridley, with Russell Gage, and you just brought in Kyle Pitts, fourth overall pick, experienced quarterback like Matt Ryan. Maybe he can kind of help, you know, rejuvenate Nikhil Harry's career. So that would be an appealing piece for the Falcons. Obviously draft picks, but how far up the totem pole do you go? Do you try to look to trade a third? Would the Falcons even take that? I mean, there's a lot of money to be dealt, so they're really looking to move Julio Jones. So would they just settle for a third? But would another team, you know, just be like, screw it. First round pick. Here you go. We'll take all the money. Potentially. I don't know. Realistically? Realistically. I could see, or what I'd be comfortable with the Patriots doing is Nikhil Harry, a second round pick this year, and, hmm, part of my phone buzzing. Second round pick this year and maybe a second round pick next year. I think that's fair. I think that's absolutely fair. On both sides, Falcons move Julio Jones. They, you know, release the money. They get some assets back in terms of a young, you know, receiver with a lot of potential still. And then you get two second round draft picks from the Patriots. Obviously, you can flip them and tumble them for another first or, you know, higher up. Whatever, whatever. We're not going to get into that right now. But that's what I'd be comfortable with trading. If it's just a first round pick in either 21 or 22, I think I'd be okay with that as well. But just the first round pick in Nikhil Harry. Could the deal get done for more or less? Absolutely. But we're just going to have to wait and see to see what the Falcons want and what the Patriots are willing to give up. But you can't count out other teams in the league. San Francisco 49ers. I'm hearing rumors that the uh, Seattle Seahawks might even be interested in them. The Denver Broncos even. I don't know why. But teams only with the salary cap can take on Julio Jones. And it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out for sure. But I'm hoping and praying that he comes to New England because the Patriots desperately need that kind of weapon. They haven't had that kind of weapon since Randy Moss that I previously mentioned. So let me know what you think down below in the comments or reach out to me on social media at Murphs underscore uh, Boston ST where the ST stands for sports talk. Let me know if you want Julio Jones, what you're willing or comfortable giving up for Julio Jones. And do you think it is possible that the Patriots even trade for Julio Jones? Whew, that, that was that was that was a good conversation right there. That was a good, good conversation right there that I'm glad that we had. And before we wrap things up really quickly, I do kind of want to talk about the Red Sox really quickly. They lost 6-2 to to the Philadelphia Phillies last night in Philly. Nothing really notable. Only got four hits. They scored two runs late in the eighth and the ninth inning, one in each. 
Phillies jumped out ahead with a four-run first. Then the pitching was able to shut them down relatively well until the eighth inning where they got two additional runs. Eduardo Rodriguez just got rocked in the first inning, was still able to throw four plus, uh, four flat innings. And then uh, Phillips Valdez gave up another two in the eighth inning. Bullpen looked good uh, for Matt Andreezy going two shutout. Um, Sawamora, one shutout as well. But the Phillies were just able to get ahead of you. Uh, Zach Wheeler really didn't do anything special. Seven and a third going, I mean, it almost seems like a, a complete game in, in present-day baseball. But seven and a third, three hits, one earned, one walk, and 12 strikeouts for him. Excellent performance. Love to see pitchers go into the eighth inning, which you never, never see anymore. But it was awesome to see him do that. If a pitcher can go seven innings, hallelujah holy smokes that's like old school nowadays that's throwbacks man i love seeing starting pitchers go deep into games but with that loss to philadelphia you have lost sole possession of first place in the american league east yes you have you are now officially tied with the tampa bay rays at 29 and 19 the new york yankees are only half a game behind you so the division it's starting to shape out. It's starting to get tough. Blue Jays still four and a half back, and Orioles are starting to fade. They're 11 games out. But this is what we expected going into this year. I mean, the, Yan- uh, the Yankees were the no, – I'm sorry, not the Yankees. The Rays were the you know reigning division champs. They traded Blake Snell, but they still have you know a lot of good pieces left. A lot of people were low on them this year. I think I was relatively lower on them, but they're still a fantastic team. The Yankees have a lot of star talent on their team, so – them sucking early was a little unprecedented, and you couldn't have expected that for all too long. They're eight and two in their last ten games. The Rays are ten and zero in their last ten games. Holy smokes! And then the Red Sox are seven and three, so they're not sucking themselves. They're playing, you know, baseball and they're winning games. But sheesh, when a team is ten and zero in their last ten, and another team is eight and two, that's tough to keep up with. And so far, the Red Sox have relatively done a good job. It's just those three losses in the past 10 games, the Rays have just been winning. And then, you know, Yankees are just kind of, you know, creeping up, 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 up. But it is an excellent divisional race so far. We absolutely expected it. I expected a decent amount from the Blue Jays as well. And they're kind of sucking and fading a little bit, but they're holding their own. You can't blame them. I mean, no one really expected them to win the division. I think maybe I, I, I kind of jumped on the bandwagon there, but... No one really expected this from the Red Sox this year, or at least realistic expectations from the Red Sox. So just looking ahead real quick, the Red Sox are off today. They'll be back at Fenway Park for a brief two-game stint with the uh, Atlanta Braves, formerly the Boston Braves. And I mention that because if you go onto the YouTube channel tomorrow, I'm sorry, not tomorrow, on Thursday, in between Wednesday and Friday's episodes of Murph's Boston Sports Talk, I will be doing the history of old New England teams where I will be covering the Boston Braves where they were the gem of Boston and the Red Sox rose in stardom and popularity, ultimately ousting the Boston Braves to Milwaukee and then to Atlanta. They are currently the longest uh, continuous professional sports team in history, the Braves organization. So welcoming back our our, I don't know, brethren, our brother team, per se, our National League uh, counterpart is definitely welcoming. So two-game series with the Braves starting tomorrow, first pitch at 7-10. 
Um, let's see. Oh, and then, you know, the second game on Wednesday, of course. And then the Marlins come into town for three games for a three game weekend series and then off to Houston for four and then to New York for three huge games coming up right there towards the end of the month and the beginning of June. Absolutely massive games. The Atlanta Braves have not performed as I thought that they would, but they are slowly creeping back up in the division. They are only a game and a half behind the New York Mets, but that division is also close across the board, two and a half games out uh, for the Nationals who are in last place of that division. So that just shows you how close that division is over there. But yeah, Braves, huge series. The Marlins, surprisingly a huge series. And then obviously when you go to Houston and New York, that could be a pivotal, pivotal series here in the season as we approach the summer and roughly a third of the way through the season but that is your Red Sox uh, minute right there hopefully you enjoyed that as we look ahead to the future and to see how the division is shaping out because you did have a little league but a little lead in the division but it's kind of faded away now due to the excellent performance from the Tampa Bay Rays and the bounce back month of May pretty much for the New York Yankees but regardless of what we talked about today in today's episode, please reach out to me on social media or comment down below with your thoughts, your opinions, your comments about anything we talked about. I would love to hear it. Bruins moving on to the second round. Absolutely hyped about that. It was fun to talk about it last night when the game just happened, but have it be part of today's episode. I just wanted to give you my thoughts like right away, my initial reactions. And I really enjoyed doing that. Hopefully you did too, because it was just all raw emotion from me. And I'm really excited that the Bruins were able to advance and take care of business in game five in the nation's capital against the Washington Capitals. Who will the Bruins face in the second round? We will have to wait and see. It is between the Islanders and the Penguins who play tonight. Looking forward to it. Games in Pittsburgh. I'll be tuning in for sure. But thank you so much for joining me for Monday's edition of Murph's Boston Sports Talk. Hopefully your weekend was fantastic. Hopefully your week is going to be a great one. Enjoy the weather. It was a beautiful weekend that we just had. Weather is a little chilly right now here in Rhode Island. But we're going to have great weather all week for sure. Maybe a little bit of rain towards the end of it. But, but, but enjoy a couple of days between now and hump day. I mean Wednesday's edition of Murph's Boston Sports Talk. But between now and then, you know that I love you and you know that I will always see ya. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.